Take your Bibles and go to 2 Samuel, <clears throat> excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 10. Young boy had just gotten his driving permit, and so he wanted to talk to his dad about using the car. And uh, his dad said, well, come on in my study here, son, and we'll talk about it. And he said, now, there's three things you need to do if you want to. You want to borrow the car. You need to get your, need to get your grades up. You need to start reading your Bible. You need to get your hair cut. And so a month later, the boy came back. I want to talk to his dad about it again. And his dad pulled him in the study, and he said, uh, he said, well, son, I'm really proud of you. He said, your grades are up. I see you studying your Bible, but I still don't see the haircut. And the boy said, well, you know, I've been reading the Bible a lot. And uh, he said, uh, uh, Noah had long hair, Samson had long hair, and even Jesus had long hair. And uh, the dad said, yes. And everywhere they went, they walked. <laughs> and uh, So... Score one for the dads on that one, huh? <laughs> Amen. Let me give you a little tip here. This, uh, this could tie in with the message somewhere, but uh, I just think it's important. Let me say this to you, uh, men. Uh, you can't lead somebody that you're afraid of. Just file that one away and think about it. It doesn't matter if it's at the workplace, at home, uh, wherever it happens to be. You can't lead somebody that you're afraid of. But the Bible does say that perfect love casts out what? So you find yourself intimidated in a situation where you're leading, and it happens to parents. That's why we have so many child-run homes, these convoluted situations where dad and mom aren't really acting as parents. Um, what you do if you find yourself in a situation like that where you're intimidated, uh, just pray to ask God to help you to love him so much that that love overcomes that fear. Because perfect love casts out fear. Let's pray. Uh, Father, lead us and guide us here now in, the, in, in the, the few moments we have here together. We thank you that we could... Uh, sing these, these great songs, hear this wonderful special music, fellowship, <clears throat> uh, laugh a little bit together, and, and uh, we thank you for Father's Day. We thank you for uh, good fathers, good Christian fathers, uh, men of character and integrity. Lord, that's what we'd like to look at here this morning in your word, and we thank you most of all for you, our Heavenly Father and our perfect example. Uh, help us now. Uh, we pray that the Spirit of God would just take full control. You, you know, Lord, I've got more material here than, than we got time for, so help me to be discerning as we go forward. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> Second Samuel chapter 10. Did I already say that? Are you there? Oh, okay, great. Second Samuel chapter 10. <clears throat> and... Uh, I want to talk to you this morning on the subject of biblical manhood. Uh, 
biblical manhood. I want to read this chapter for you. It's only 19 verses, but it tells the story that we're going to look at here. And it came to pass after this that the king of the children of Ammon died, and Hanan his son reigned in his stead. Then said David, I will show kindness unto Hanan the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness unto me. And David sent to comfort him by the hand of his servants for his father. And David's servants came into the land of the children of Ammon, (coughs) excuse me, and the princes of the children of Ammon said unto Hanan their lord, Thinkest thou that David doth honor thy father, that he hath sent comforters unto thee? <clears throat> hath not David rather sent his servants unto thee to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? Wherefore Hanan took David's servants and shaved off one half of their beards and cut off their garments in the middle, even unto their buttocks, and sent them away. And they told it unto David, and he sent to meet them, because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Tarry at Jericho until your beards be grown, and then return. And when the children of Ammon saw that they stank before David, isn't that descriptive? (laughs) They, They stunk. They stank before David. The children of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 footmen, and the king of, of uh, Mekah, 1,000 men, and of Ishtab, 12,000 men. You know, I, I was reading this the other day, and something occurred to me that never occurred to me before. It would have been a lot easier if the guy would have just received the goodwill of David. And now he's got himself a mess. You ever done that? And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the hosts of the mighty men. And the children of Ammon came out and put the battle at the entering of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and Rehob and Ishtab and Mekah were by themselves in the field. And when Joab saw that the front of the battle was against him before and behind, he chose of all the choice men of Israel and put them in array against the Syrians. And the rest of the people he delivered into the hand of Abishai, his brother, that he might put them in array against the children of Ammon. <coughs> Excuse me. And he said, If the Syrians be too strong for me, then thou shalt help me. But if the children of Ammon be too strong for thee, then I will come and help thee. Be of good courage, and let us play the men for our people and for the cities of our God. And the Lord do that which seemeth him good. And Joab drew nigh, and the people that were with him under the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the children of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fled, Uh, Then fled they also before Abishai and entered into the city. So Joab returned from the children of Ammon and came to Jerusalem. And when the Syrians saw that they were smitten before Israel, they gathered themselves together. And, of course, the rest of the story tells of of a very complete victory. Now, what I want to call your attention to is verse 12, where Joab says, Be of good courage and let us play the men for our people. And for the cities of our God, and the Lord do that which seemeth him good. I want to talk to you this morning a little bit about biblical manhood. You know, I, I, I remember growing up as a young man hearing discussions among older men about what it meant to be a man. Of course, it, it was all unsaved guys. I remember one time at work at a Montgomery Ward's warehouse, uh, I overheard uh, my boss and a few of the other guys talk, and one guy said, well, you know, if you can drink your whiskey without a chaser, you know, you're a man. And another guy said, well, if you can go shoot and gut a deer, you're a man, you know. And uh, people have all kinds of idea what it takes to be a man. A lot of people put emphasis on physical toughness. You know, is it a football player? Is it a, 
Is it a boxer? Is it somebody with the discipline to, to, to run track? Uh, is, it, is it the soldier? Is, is that what it means to be a man? Uh, is it education? Is it mental toughness <clears throat> and that kind of discipline? Um, some would suggest culture. Um, others, money, the clout of collateral. Is that really what it means uh, to be a man? Well, I'll tell you what. When you look at our text here this morning, uh, all the elements are there. So let's take a look at it. First of all, if you look at verse 2, you'll see gratitude. David is showing gratitude. And uh, that, is, that is such a rare thing, even back then, that it, it, it startled the Ammonites. They, they didn't believe it. You know, this guy's not, and, and of course, David had some kind of good relationship with Nahash, uh, the older man that died, the king, and now his son Hanan took over. And uh, they, just, they just couldn't believe it. Uh, this guy's actually coming to show gratitude. No, he, he, he's coming to spy out the land. He's coming to set up the Trojan horse. Um, someone once said, if you want to find gratitude, look it up in the dictionary. I remember growing up as a kid uh, around Christmas time. Uh, we'd have these big get-togethers. We, we, we had big family on both sides. And, of course, as a kid, I... I enjoyed it a lot. You know, you got presents and stuff. It changed a little bit when I got older and I had to buy presents. Uh, then it was a little bit different. And none of the boxes rattled anymore. But I remember my mom would always, every present I opened, for, I mean, she was watching me the whole time. I swear she had eyes in the back of her head. Rick, go say thank you. And I'd have to get up and go say thank you to you know, uncle so-and-so or aunt so-and-so. And, of course, all the older aunts and grandmas all had that orange lipstick. And uh, so by the time the evening was over with, my face was tattooed up with all kinds of orange lipstick. And, but they, uh, they, they drilled that in us as kids. And you know what? Uh, thank you is a good thing. Thank you is a good thing. Uh, my wife is good for me. She's, she's very thankful. And uh, if anybody's going to be grumpy gills about, around the house, it's usually going to be me. And, and uh, she's, she's good for me. But thank you is a good thing, especially around the house, folks. Uh, guys, tell her, thankful for the, t- tell her thank you for the common everyday things she does. She pour you a cup of coffee, say thanks. She make you breakfast, say thanks. Uh, you got clean underwear in the drawer, say thanks. Uh, you know, a lot of that sort of just everyday stuff goes a long way. And so David was a man, he was a man of gratitude. Remember the story of the ten lepers that Jesus healed? And uh, only one came back to thank him. Imagine if you had leprosy. And, and I'm not going to try to tell you what I know about leprosy for the sake of time, but you know, we all know something about it. It was a horrible disease. It was a life sentence. You were never going to get over it. It was only going to get worse and worse and worse. And imagine somebody coming by and healing you completely. I mean, not treating you for it and saying, hey, you'll be better in a month, but bang, like that, healing you. Wouldn't you think all 10 of them 
would have said thank you. But only one. But only one. Gratitude. A quality so rare, it startled and surprised the Ammonites. They really didn't believe it. Uh, a number of years ago, <clears throat> we decided to send letters out to all the uh, politicians in the state. I mean, everybody from the governor to the dog catcher. And uh, basically, we just uh, sent them a letter saying, thank you for your, uh, your service as a public servant. And we just want you to know that we here at Treasure Valley Baptist Church are praying for you. And uh, we, we did pray for them. We had a list, and we prayed for them uh, over a, over a, on and off for a period of about a month. And you wouldn't believe some of the responses that, that we got. We got a couple of letters that said effectively the same thing. I got a couple of voicemails on my phone. And one guy was practically in tears. You could hear his voice cracking. But here's what he said. He says, I've been in public office. It was over 20 years. It was, I think it was close to 30 years. And he said, I've been cussed out. I've been fussed out. I've been yelled at. And by the way, I've seen it. When we've gone to Washington, D.C., um, I sat there in, in one, of our, uh, one of our representatives' office. It wasn't uh, Simpson. It wasn't Brother Fulcher. I think it might have been Rish. And these two guys came out of his office. And later on, I found they, they were from the dairy lobby. But holy schmoly, man, I mean, they were... They were cussing a blue streak like a, a sailor and, and just yelling back at Rish. And uh, this guy said, he said, I've been, he says, I've been called everything. But he said, the one thing that has never, are you ready for this? Never, ever happened is someone has said, thank you for what you do. Can you imagine that? All of those years. And uh, so it's a, it's a great quality. And yet, it's a, it's a rare quality. We don't have time to uh, elaborate on this, but if, if you go to Romans chapter 1, the downward spiral of human nature starts with unthankfulness. Unthankfulness, and of course, specifically toward God. So we need to be thankful, guys. Number two, number two, look at verse two. Kindness. Kindness. David sent to comfort him. David sent to comfort him. Now, uh, gals, you know, guys comfort a little different than women do. And in this day and age, you know, you, you hear a lot about, you know, well, men should be more sensitive. Uh, un unfortunately, they don't really mean that. The word sensitive means men should be more effeminate. And I, I don't subscribe to that for a second, okay? But you can be kind in a masculine way. And, and that's what David was doing here. Uh, the, Bible, uh, the Bible says of Jesus, a bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment on the victory. Uh, Christ himself was was gentle by nature. And, and by the way, sir, uh, if you're 
physically abusive at home, shame on you. You're not manly, you're a coward. Okay? And if you don't like that, come up and see me after the service. I'll splatter your nose all over your face. God didn't give you that physical superiority to intimidate your family. He gave you that strength to protect them and give them a sense of security. And, 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 and on top of it, the other thing we should be careful of, guys, is not to take our frustrations out on our families by perhaps being verbal, verbally abusive. We should be man enough to just own our own problems and deal with them and appreciate the prayers of our family and the encouragement of our family. But uh, where should we be the kindest? We should be the kindest at home. The Bible says in Titus 3, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. After the kindness of God toward us. So God is kind. Christ is kind. And David was kind. The Bible says in Jeremiah 31, The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. O oh God, when I am wrong, make me easy to change. And when I am right, make me easy to live with. A child was overheard praying one time, Dear God, please make all the bad people good, and please make all the good people nice. <laughs> Number three, take a look at verse one. Here's another quality of David and, and his men. I see a forgiving spirit. He was king of the children of Ammon. Folks, they were the natural enemies of the Jews. I think of Jonah with the Ninevites. That was his whole problem with preaching to them. He just, he hated the Ninevites. Imagine as a preacher, God has guaranteed you a revival and you don't want anything to do with it. Seems rather odd, doesn't it? But what the Ninevites had done to his people... And it was horrible stuff if you read the history of it. He just hated him. And, and he, didn't want, he didn't want to see him get right with God. He wanted to see God judge him. And that's why he wouldn't go preach to him. And you know what that is? That's, that's unforgiveness. That's unforgiveness. David is showing kindness. He wants to know, is there any of the house of Saul that I can show kindness to? Uh, you know, normally when a king took over, he would wipe out. He would wipe out all, all of the family line of the, previous, of the previous monarch, but not David. He wanted to show kindness. You want to know something, folks? If you don't get anything else from this, guys, uh, file this one away because this one is, this is immutable. You will get nowhere with God. I mean, nowhere unless you forgive others. Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount. He was very emphatic about it. You say, well, oh, in Christ, you know, I'm forgiven. Yeah, that's positionally. 
Okay? Allow me a little attitude here for a second. I'll, I'll play God. Okay, positionally, you're, you're, you're safe in me. You, you, you'll be forgiven for the eternal penalty of your sins no matter what. But when you look up at me, you could see this or you could see this. And you know what happens when you won't forgive others? This is what you get out of God. That's what he meant. And David had a forgiving spirit. You've heard me say it before. I'll say it again because it's true. Marriage is a relationship between two forgivers. You know, sometimes when I'm confessing a sin and I'm old enough now where I think, I think I've committed certain sins a lot of times. And you know what I'll do? Sometimes I'll take God's word and kind of turn it on him a little bit. I don't think he minds. But I told him not too long ago when I was confessing a sin, I said, you know, Lord, you said we got to forgive somebody 70 times 7. Is that 490? I said, Lord, you're way better than me. Please forgive me again just this one more time. The Bible says, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. One of the greatest kindnesses ever shown was the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How amazing an example our Lord Jesus Christ to all of us. Number, number four, look at, look at verse five. We see wisdom here. Tarry, tarry at Jericho until your beards be grown, then return. He didn't want them paraded through the streets, a spectacle. He used some wisdom here. I was reading the Bible the other day, and Solomon's first famous act of wisdom with those two harlots and that one child, and, and just how the Lord gave him that wisdom. We need wisdom every day. James chapter 1, verse 5 says, God will give it liberally to us if we'll ask, if we'll ask in faith, and he'll not abrade us. He'll not say, you know, you've come to, come to me for wisdom five times this week. I'm, I'm done. No, no, he won't do that. And by the way, the first thing you need if you're going to get wisdom is humility. You know, why some, you know why some men don't have wisdom? Because they think they already know everything. In fact, when you study the four main characters in the book of Proverbs, the wise man, the fool, uh, the scorner, and the simple... The wise man never feels like he's attained. He's always becoming. And he's called wise because he's always, he's always improving. He always knows the biggest room in the house is the room for improvement. But what do the other three have in common? Eh, don't bother me. I, I already know. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Young man, you want to prove you're a man? Be humble and listen to your elders. 
That's wisdom. That's wisdom. Not the know-it-all attitude that says, well, you know, me and my friends have talked it over. Look, can I tell you something about your friends? With all the kindness I can muster up in my heart, they're just as ignorant and inexperienced as you are. And in some cases, downright stupid. Wisdom. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. One of the things you find in the book of Proverbs is that purity figures into wisdom. Out of the first seven chapters of the book of Proverbs, chapters 2, 5, 6, and 7, have devoted large portions of it toward purity. Purity. You know, if you're filled with lust, you can't think straight. If you're filled with lust, you can't think straight. Where does that that leave pornography? Huh? If your mind is filled with that stuff, you're not going to make good decisions. I look at this chapter, what a wonderful chapter, and then I look at the next chapter and I cringe. I think, I, I wish chapter 11 would never show up. The trouble that entered into David's life and his family for a lack of temperance. I think it's ironic that a young man takes up smoking to prove he's tough and then spends the rest of his life trying to quit to prove the same thing. Same with drinking, same with drugs. Temperance is all part of wisdom if we read the book of Proverbs. How about this next one? How about this fifth thing? Look at verse five, uh, 6. Uh, the Bible says they, they stank. Uh, that shows temper. That shows temper. I wouldn't give you a plug nickel for a man that doesn't have a temper. I'll say that again. I wouldn't give you a plug nickel for a man that doesn't have a temper. But you need to keep it under control. If you've got an anger problem this morning, you need to remember something. You take anger and put a D in front of it, and that's what you're dealing with. I've dealt with men that have anger problems that blow up in their home and scare everybody to, to tomorrow and try to rule by intimidation, and they'll say to me, well, I, I, it only happens once in a while. Yeah, a grenade only goes off once. Brother Dan Metters does a lot of preaching down in the Texas prisons, and he said, preacher, he said, a lot of those guys there that I preach to, he said, they're my friends. He said, they're regular guys. They're not criminals in the classic sense that you would think. Yes, some of them are. But he said, a lot of them aren't. And he said, all they did was lose their temper one time too many. You know, you watch the movies and, and the westerns and stuff, and They're throwing these haymakers at each other and knocking each other across the room again and again and again. You know what? Normally, just one solid one on the button puts you away and sometimes kills a man. And he said that's what happened to a lot of those guys. They just hauled off and cracked a guy one time. Oh, and he said, by the way, a lot of them had a little liquor in them too when it happened. Yeah. We could talk about booze for a while. But they had temper. You know what? We, we should get mad about certain things. You know what I'm mad about? 
I'm mad that my country is being given away. You know, we got all this great military and all this stuff. It's not going to matter. If we get so corrupt from within that it's given away. And that's what I see happening, and it, it frankly makes me mad. I, I get mad when somebody threatens my family. I've had, it, I've had it happen twice in the ministry. Years and years ago in Pennsylvania, I tried to help a man with his marriage. It didn't work out, and found out later on in court, he, he blamed me, among others, and threatened me and my family. You say, what did you do? I went to the gun shop and got my wife a 38, and I oiled up my 357. Yeah. And later on, we got dealing with the homosexuals at large with Proposition 1. How many of you remember that years and years ago? Standing behind Prop 1, and I ended up in the national uh, homosexual newspaper, and we start, I started getting messages on my answering machine at the church. Of course, in those days, it was a little recorder. And the police said, you hang on to those little, little cassettes. But they were threatened to do some pretty nasty things to, to me and my family. It makes, me, it makes me mad when someone corrects my Bible. Because the Bible is supposed to be correcting us. It makes me mad when somebody bad mouths my church. You say, well, preacher, you're just saying that because you're the pastor. No, I've always been that way. I've always been that way. I think of Jesus cleansing the temple. Somebody said, well, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't really mad. He wasn't really angry. I don't think so. I think he had what we would call righteous indignation. When I think of David, when he said, is there not a cause? When Goliath was defying the armies of the living God. I think, I think David was upset. And there's, there's a time for getting upset. Take your Bibles and turn to uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 12. I want to show you something else about this. 1 Chronicles chapter 12. And there's another component to all this. And that component is loyalty. If you look at verse 32, if you look at verse 32, they're talking about some of David's Mighty men, and the Bible says in verse 32, and the children of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times to, to know what Israel ought to do, and the heads of them were 200, and all their brethren were at their commandment. And then verse 33 of Zebulun, such as went forth to battle, expert in war, with all instruments of war, 50,000. Now watch this, this next phrase, which could keep rank, they were not of a double heart. You know what they were? They were loyal. They were loyal. And the older I get, the more I appreciate loyalty. I find there's, there's four stages with loyal. You got some people that are just fiercely loyal. You say, what do you mean by fiercely loyal? Well, start criticizing someone they love. Start criticizing their church, and you're going to get a face full of quills. They're just not going to sit there and go, oh, okay, okay. They're going to tell you you're wrong. Then there's loyal. 
Just plain loyal people. I appreciate them. I appreciate loyalty toward my country. I like people that are patriotic. I, 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 I like to see a vehicle going down the street with an American flag on it. Doesn't hurt my feelings at all. I always think to myself, go through the north end. <laughs> Drive through the north end. And then there's, then there's all oil. You say, what's all oil? All oil is somebody that just, they could, take every, they could take things or leave it. Yeah, I'm here. My friends are here. Or I'm here because my family's here. But something changes, I could change. And then lastly, there's disloyal. You know, I read over and over again in the book of the Psalms, Psalms that were to the sons of Korah or for the sons of Korah. Did you ever stop and think about that? Korah ended up in a pit, an opening in the ground that swallowed him up for his rebellion against Moses and Aaron and the, and the leadership that God had put there. And apparently, not all of his sons went along with the program. They were like, hey, hey Dad, we love you, but we're not going into the bottomless pit with you over this. You know what they were? They were loyal. And apparently they were musical. And, and I just, I often wonder if God didn't just single them out a little bit there in the Psalms. Just give them a little extra recognition for that. The sons of Korah. You know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of what Jesus said about discipleship. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple... You, you, might, you might have to turn your back on family. Amen? And, and, and then he went so far as to say, you may have to turn your back on your own life. But when I think of those sons of Korah, I think of what Jesus talked about with discipleship. Now, I had to get this settled right away after I got saved. I was, the, to my knowledge, the first person saved on either side of the family ethnic Catholics going back to the old country, and, and uh, boy, it was pretty clear to me from the outset that if I was going to serve the Lord, I was going to have to do it in spite of my family, not because of them. But you know what? I held to my guns, and a lot of them came along over time. Go with God, okay? Family is wonderful. But if, if you're going to go with God until family decides not to, then you're not a disciple. Loyalty. Number six, look at verse 10. I see fight. I see fight. We're soldiers for the Lord. We need to be willing to fight. Someone once said the trouble with God's army is that there's too many conscientious objectors. fight. The Bible says that the, the believer battles the world. 
He battles the flesh. He battles the devil. And you know what we need these days? We need some Christians with convictions. Not just beliefs. Not just someone when the uh, Jehovah Witness or the Mormon knocks on their door. They say, well, you know, I, I, I got my church and, and we believe different, so uh, I'll take a pass. Or worse yet, they start listening and because they don't have any convictions, they get pulled in. You know, the Mormon church gleefully boasts that the largest percentage of their converts, proselytes to Mormonism, are people of professing Baptist faith. You know, they got that 25-cent bubblegum profession of faith, and then they don't know anything beyond that, and they get pulled in. You know what we need? We need men and women that have convictions, convictions, and that they know what they believe. Fight. Some of you might be old enough to remember this old cigarette commercial when they had cigarette commercials on television. And they show a guy there with a black eye, and he'd say, I don't know what cigarette it was, he was advertised, but he'd hold the pack of cigarettes. He goes, I'd rather fight than switch. <laughs> you know what? We need some Christians like that. They'd rather fight than switch. Martin Luther once said back in the 1500s, he said, If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. For where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefields beside is mere flight in disgrace if he flinches at that point. Willing to fight. Willing to fight. Uh, you're going to find if you hang around here long enough that we're going to be for a lot of things. But we're also going to be against a lot of things. And you know what I found after 43 years in the ministry? There's always something to be against. It might change from time to time, but there's always something afoot that the devil's trying to sell us, amen? And you know what? We need to be against it and specific about it. But spirit, spiritual toughness, spiritual toughness. I, I've been around professional hockey players. I've watched them get sewn up between periods of a game. I mean, bleeding like a stuck pig. Look like an oil change. And laying there on that gurney and that trainer, doctor, whatever, sewing them up. And they throw a bandage over there and send them right back out in the game. That, that kind of toughness. Pro playing with broken wrists and stuff. And I've seen those kind of guys tremble at a gospel track. We're talking about moral, spiritual, ethical toughness. By the way, get your boys outside. 
And let them do something dangerous. Let them fall out of a tree and break their arm. I probably won't get a lot of amens out of the moms. You know what else Ben Carson said? And I got a lot of respect for that man. He said, I, I saw him one time, he was being interviewed, and he said, what would I say to this generation of young people? He'd say, I, he said, I, I'll, I'd tell them, turn off the screen and read a book. That's what he said. But get your boys outside. Let them do something real. Do you want them going to the marriage altar knowing the only life they had was virtual up to that point? You know, everybody's got this motto, be real, be real. How? Spend your whole time on a screen. Get out from behind that thing and go out. Rough it up a little bit. Get bunged up. Break a sweat. It won't kill you. You can take a shower later. Bible says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. God hasn't called us to be knuckle-draggers, guys, but uh, the tenth fruit of the Spirit is not nice. This current generation of Christians thinks the tenth fruit of the Spirit is nice. And I'm not, I, I'm not against nice, but they have the attitude, if it's nice, then it's of God. If it's not nice, then it's icky. And we need to stay away from it. We've got a bunch of Christian men that spiritually act like a bunch of little girls. No, it's a spider. We need to develop some spiritual toughness. I don't know if you've noticed, but our, our country, our world, is in a free fall spiritually. It's in a free fall morally. It's in a free fall any other way you want to think about it. And if we're just going to go with the flow, we're going down the swirling vortex. We're going to have to be like the spawning salmon going against the current. And if we get there all beat up and falling apart, so be it. But God doesn't want us washing out with this world. Paul said, for I am ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand. He said, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. He said, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love is appearing. Winston Churchill said back during the beginning of the Second World War, he said, if you will not fight for the right, when you can easily win without bloodshed, if you will not fight when your victory will be sure, you may come to the moment when you will have to fight with all the odds against you and only a precarious chance of survival, and they found out about that. You know what happened in chapter 11? Let me show you what happened in chapter 11. Look at verse 1. Look at verse 1. You know what happened? David quit fighting. The Bible says in verse 1, and it came to pass 
after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. Did the first part of the verse say it was a time when kings go forth to battle? Then why didn't David do it? Got a little fat and sassy and lazy and stayed home. You know what? If he hadn't stayed home, the rest of that chapter might not have been written. And that would have been a good thing. Number seven. Number seven. Look at verses nine through 11. We'll get there. There's no service tonight, okay? I see cooperation. I see cooperation. They cooperated. You know what that means? You got to give and you got to take. But you do have to do some giving. What if Abishai said, no, I want the other side. I want to fight over there. Why do you always get to fight them? Can you imagine those two brothers standing there arguing with each other over that in front of all those soldiers? Abishai said, okay, Joab, we'll fight on this front. And if these guys are too strong for us, you come help us. And you fight on that front. And if those guys are too strong for you, we'll come and help you. Amen. How about it, department head? How about it, ministry leader? Do you see yourself as part of a team? Or do you just see yourself going it alone? Have you got myopic and the only thing that counts is your ministry? Which, by the way, it's not. It's God's. It's yours on loan. People sometimes say, how many years have you pastored your church? I'll say, it's not my church. I really do. I correct them. I've been here decades. It's not my church. It's God's church. Don't forget that. The people under your charge aren't your people. They're God's people. Cooperative. Willing to get along. Willing to share time on the calendar. All the gals in the office should be laughing right now. The tyranny of the calendar. There's only one thing wrong with a year, is it doesn't have 36 months. They cooperated. God hasn't called us to be implacable knuckle-draggers who believe that our opinion is divine revelation. We need to be determined, but not stubborn and bullheaded. There's a bed and breakfast somewhere in Germany We're over the bar. They have two deer mounted with their antlers interlocked. And that's how they were found dead. General Jackson one time was having a meeting in a tent in the battlefield with some of his commanding officers. And these guys were just fussing with each other, fussing with each other, fussing with each other. And he said, gentlemen, gentlemen, stop. He said, the enemy out there. Amen? The enemy, he's out there. Number eight, look at verse 12. They were courageous. They were greatly outnumbered. 
They were greatly outnumbered. But they went on and fought anyways. I like what Joab said. He said, be of good courage. You say, what's good courage? Well, courage is not the absence of fear. It's the control of it, the conquering of it. But good courage is a courage that rubs off on others and inspires others to have courage. And by the way, a lot of times when, when, men, when men perform courageous acts, whether it's on the battlefield or otherwise, they're fearful inside, but they go ahead anyways. It's not the absence of fear. It's the conquering of it. And then I like what he says here, and let us play the men for our people. Sometimes you're not going to feel like leading. Sometimes you're not going to feel like doing the right thing. Sometimes you're not going to feel like fighting something you need to fight and taking a stand and putting it all out there. Sometimes you're not going to feel like standing up in front of others for Christ. You say, what do you do then? I'll give it to you in two words. Fake it. Fake it. Suck it up. Yeah, your knees are knocking. Just don't let your opponent see you sweat. And go ahead anyways. Amen. The Bible says David was a man after God's own heart. I, I really think part of, part of that in God's eyes was his courage. You know, we need more courageous leaders in our homes. Out on the job site, in the church, in our community. <laughs> in politics. Thank God for Russ Fulcher. You need to pray for him. I've been down there. I haven't experienced a, a one-hundredth of what he's experienced, but boy, I've seen some things. I gave uh, an invocation and a benediction at uh, Lincoln Day here at the Capitol a number of years ago. Brother Russ got me and pulled me in the middle of that. What he didn't tell me is he said the whole balcony was going to be filled with homosexual lobbyists. I said, thanks, Russ. <laughs> so I decided to put a couple things in there in my prayer about perversion. I'm telling you what, that foul spirit in that place was so thick you could cut it with a knife. We need, we need to pray for these guys that are trying to do right in the halls of Congress. Because they're up against a lot, folks. They're up against a lot. John Wesley said, Give me a hundred men who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I will shake the world. I care not a straw whether they be clergymen or laymen. Lastly, look at verse 12. And we'll close with this. These were men of faith. These were men of faith. And the Lord do that which seemeth him good. You know what, guys? In the end, all we can do, are you ready for this? I'm 65 in a couple weeks, and this is one of the profound things I've learned. You ready? All we can do is all we can do. Once you've done everything you can, don't sweat it. You say, well, what if, and, and what if that? No. Did you do everything you could do? Then you know what? The Lord do that which seemeth him good. Isn't it great to have the Lord? 
I wouldn't want to go through this life without Christ. How fatalistic that would be. And I know we live in crazy times. Man, this has been about the craziest year of my life this last year or so. But you know what? The Bible's still the Bible. God is still God. Jesus Christ still saves. Oh, he's still coming back. And we're still on the winning side, folks. Don't, guys, don't get the deer in the headlights. Look. Been listening to too much talk radio and you're getting down. Just shut that thing off. Uh, punch, you know, however you do it. If you want to do CDs or pull it out of the cloud, put some Alexander Scorby in there reading the King James Bible to you. That'll, that'll get your spirit and your faith back up again. But we need to be men of faith. We don't need to have the bunker mentality. Because the Bible says that we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. Oh, and by the way, don't live too close to your failures. Don't live too close to your failures. I'm old enough now to have amassed a lot of failures. And you know what? You confess where you need to confess, and then you let God take care of it. You're not going to go very far walking forward looking backwards. These were men of faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Men of faith. We've been studying Hebrews chapter 11. What a great chapter. What an encouragement. The Bible says where there is no vision, the people perish. I'm going to close there, but I... I want to reach back to something else here. Please pardon me. This isn't very homiletically sound. I get it. I want to close with this poem. It's my favorite poem. And you don't have to tell me after the service it was written by a lost man. I already know that. But he's a better poet than you are. (laughs) So when you write a better poem than this one, give it to me. And I'll read yours. Deal? This is Rudyard Kipling's If. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about and don't deal in lies. Or being hated, don't give way to hating and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things that you gave your life to broken and stoop down and build them up with worn out tools, You can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone and so hold on when there is nothing in you. 
except the will, which says to them, hold on. You can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings nor lose the common touch. If neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you but none too much. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And which is more, you'll be a man, my son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for these examples in this chapter of manhood and, and help us, Lord. We live in, we're living in the last days, we're sure. And you know more about it than we do. So God, we ask that you would shore us up. Give us the backbone and the courage and the want to and the will to stand for you in these times of apostasy and declension. It seems that everything around us is just coming off the tracks. Father, we know that we're going to be a remnant. We know we're not going to be the majority. But help us to be willing to be a remnant, to be your remnant, Lord, mighty men of valor that are willing to stand for you. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we'll just have the instruments play a little bit here. Had some come to pray. If you want to come and pray, we'll take a little time here. And then we'll sing a song. And we'll be dismissed. Go ahead and take our hymnals and stand and turn to number 379. 379, faith of our fathers.
detail death our father's chain in prisons dark were still in heart and conscience free We will be true 